The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I made no campaign promises because until a few weeks ago, I had no hope of being elected. <laughs> now, however, I have something more than a hope. Every straw vote, every independent poll shows that I'll be elected. Now I can afford to make some promises. <laughs> Good morning, London. It's Thursday, April 24th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to this, believe it or not, last Thursday show for the month of April. We're going into the month of May already, quick as that's gone by, and it feels like summer out there. Welcome to the show, 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join the discussion today, or email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com, or of course your one-stop shopping website is justrightmedia.org where you can see these numbers all displayed right on our website and get a complete archive of all of the past shows of Just Right. Now welcome to today's show. Um, last week as you'll recall I had a couple of guests on, uh, Mark and Connie Fournier, and I have to thank basically the Forest City Institute for the show we had last week uh, and uh, you know Mark and Connie were brought to town, along with Michael Corrin, for an event at the Crouch Library last week on freedom of speech. And they were brought into town by the Forest City Institute, which describes itself as an independent, non-profit policy research foundation based in London, Ontario, whose mission is to study the issues of civic governance and to propose free market solutions. Today, three executive members of the Forest City Institute the FCI join us live here in the studio, and I am joined by David Aldridge, Mary Lou Ambrosio, and Arthur Mayor. And just briefly, I think we'll just say hi to each of you. We'll start with Dave first. We're going to do this alphabetically. No, no unfairness here, Dave. Uh, say hi to the folks and uh, tell us a morning, bit about... Bob, and thanks for having us on here. Um, and uh, why you're with the Forest Inst- City Institute. Why am I with the Forest City Institute? That'd be a, that would be a long story right there. Well, let's but, uh, keep it down to introduction levels. Yeah. Well, I, I just... <laughs> for years now, I've been, I've been uh, rather frustrated, like a lot of people in London, with the, uh, the way our municipal government is run. And it struck me that there hasn't been really much of a debate about the uh, proper uh, jurisdictional responsibilities, the spheres of influence that municipalities should have, uh, a debate that has been going on for provincial and federal governments, but municipalities have had a pretty free reign to go about and do what they want. And I thought, well, um, there ought to be some kind of venue for discussing, or, or at least for opening the debate on those kind of subjects. And... Uh, through uh, some internet conversations with various like-minded people in London, we've come together and created the Forest City Institute. Oh, yeah, so that's how it's done. It's that old internet again, eh? Yep. <laughs> Mary Lou, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having and, us. And what's, what's your story here? Like, same, similar, same thing? Similar to David. I've been politically active for a long, long time, mostly in the political party side. And at mm-hmm. some point I realized that the advocacy side is critical, too. Uh, we have to give our politicians permission to go certain places, and you do that by gathering people together. Governments tend to listen to groups that are organized. And during the municipal election, um, I met Arthur and David and a few others, Matt Clark, um, and we realized we had the same things in common and decided to work together for the same goal. Excellent. And last but certainly not least, Arthur Mayor, you've been a guest on this show before in a completely different context. That's right. Thanks for having me again, Bob. Yeah. Uh, you were, of course, on the show about uh, your stay and mission in Afghanistan there about a year ago, which is still online, folks. And uh, today, Arthur, uh, Arthur, of course, was a mayoralty candidate during the last election as well. So uh, kind of not su- too surprised to see you here. But what uh, brought you to the whole Forest City Institute thing? Well, it's kind of an extension of why I actually uh, put my hat, my name in the uh, ring for mayor 
you know, there's lots of issues that most political candidates simply refuse to talk about or, or evade. Um, running for mayor gave me a platform to talk about some of these things, mm -hmm. but you know, once the election is over, then there's silence for the next four years. So, you know, meeting with people like Mary Lou and David during the campaign, and uh, you know, just developing these ideas, uh, we realized it needed a way to keep this discussion going. You know, keep the electorate informed, mm -hmm. uh, keep up to date on issues. Because if the electorate really isn't informed, or if they only get a very narrow view of how things are done, then they really have a very limited number of choices that they can make. You know, if we can expand the debate, they can see that there's wider ranges of choices and options available, then perhaps we can make some changes at the municipal level. And uh, just so folks know, you've got a website up they could get to if they wanted to check it out right now. Where would they go? Uh, forcityinstitute.ca. That's it, forestcityinstitute.ca, if you want to check it out, which is what I did when I checked out some of your press releases and some of your mission statements. And one of them in particular, when you say, for, for example, when you say that uh, um, you're a research foundation, a policy foundation, but your mission is to like propose free market solutions, um, wouldn't some people perhaps suggest that maybe that already makes your group a biased one? I mean, it sounds like, okay, you're going to have a free market solution, um, to every problem. Is there a free market solution to every problem? And, or are you starting putting the cart before the horse? Or, do you, or is that not how it works? <laughs> well, I think the reason that we stress free market solutions is because most of the solutions being offered are status solutions. Uh, my favorite hobby horse happens to be downtown redevelopment. Mm -hmm. And you know, we can get into this later in the show, of course, but the task, the task force <laughs> on downtown redevelopment uh, basically expressed a view of downtown redevelopment, which is an extension of what's already been done. You know, more spending, more control, more restrictions on what can and cannot be done in downtown. Now, through our research, we happen to know that there's uh, counterexamples, and we'll, we'll certainly get into that, but, you know, between having the city take absolute control over downtown and between free market solution, there's lots of different options that can be done to revitalize downtown and you can take the same sort of stance on just about every other issue of civic governance. Now, I will be the first to admit there's not a 100% free market solution for every problem, but for a lot of problems, they're certainly, you know, looking towards the free market give you a much wider range of options. Okay. Uh, that's a bit about the Forest City Institute. Now, let's just take a, how you may view municipal government. Maybe we all look at municipal government a little bit different. You know, it's called the Corporation of the City of London, right? So... My question, my first question as far as that goes is, is it, is London, the corporation of the city of London, is it a government? Is it a corporation? Is it both? Is it neither? Is it a hybrid? Is it something else? Like, what is the actual status of the city in terms of, I don't even know, law? Well, given I, that I they have the power to regulate, uh, mm -hmm. to make regulations and uh, raise taxes, that would certainly that uh, would qualify for government, a government yeah, exactly. right? Yeah, uh, as far as the corporation aspect, well, um, uh, <laughs> it certainly seems at times that they are looking to make a bit of a profit, for example, in surplus revenues. But uh, aside from that, no, I think people regard um, the, the City of London as their municipal government. And there are certain expectations of a municipal government. Uh, not everybody is going to share the same expectations. Like you mentioned, there's various different uh, ways of viewing uh, the corporation. But most people would probably agree on certain basics, uh, for example, uh, putting together roads and sewers, maintaining mm -hmm. the infrastructure, uh, providing uh, a safe place for people to pursue their own business. Um, now, you, you hear a lot of people, though, they say, well, the problem with City Hall is that it should be run like a business, right? Because so, it is kind of a business, it's a corporation. It does sell services. It does to sell a degree. services, yes. And to that extent, it's a business. And, of course, it is like a government because it's got taxation. We have politics. We have elections. We have, uh, you know, they can legislate choice. They can legislate uh, even behavior that goes on on the city streets. Well, which of, like, what would you consider to be, I'm going to leave, leave this open to whoever wants to answer this, the, the more legitimate or illegitimate functions of municipal government, segregating it from the rest. Are there areas you think municipal government's getting into it shouldn't even be touching? Yeah, well, there's a... There's a there's a lot there's a wide scope of uh, of uh, subjects that come under that. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, as far as the Ontario Municipal Act, if you want to start from that uh, that point of view, well, city uh, city governments can pretty much do whatever they want. Uh, there, there's actually 
they're not very much restricted from uh, entering any sphere of action of, of, of individual or, or business life in the city. Um, we, there's, uh, there are certainly, you know, the expectations of ordinary people that their roads are going to uh, be fixed so that they can get to work or, or uh, you know, get to wherever they want to go. Uh, you know, water, uh, sewers, the traditional, the traditional roles of, of municipal government. Uh, there, those are still very much, I think, um, the the significant uh, role that people expect the the government to run. Okay, uh, we're, we're going to expand on both those areas later on in the show. You know, most people talk about local government. You hear that phrase, "think globally, act locally," right? And uh, so often you hear in th in theory that municipal government is quote closer to the people than is federal or provincial government. Um, is that your experience, Mary Lou? Is that? Yeah. Is it? Yeah, and I would say that 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 closeness results in a lot of emotional thinking at the municipal level, or the indulgence of that emotional thinking, which then leads to: Should we be going here as a government? Is this our function? Well, that's interesting. It wasn't quite the, an answer I would have quite uh, expected in that respect, because. When I think of municipal government, I, I know you can go there and you can talk to them, but do they ever, quote, listen, end quote, or... They or tend to uh, listen on those emotional issues, I mm -hmm. find. That's been what I've observed. Same, same with the rest of you, is that...? Oh, yes. I mean, sitting in city council meetings is quite instructive. Um, I sat at a planning <coughs> committee meeting one, uh, one evening, and the discussion was about um, regulating drive-throughs. Now, there's representation from the restaurant industry and, you know, they had a person giving scientific information about emissions from cars idling or emissions from cars starting from cold starts, uh, submissions about how many jobs were created, and so on and so on. And all that just seemed to pass right out the window because as soon as the opponents spoke, you know, it was all about, you know, oh, it's about people's health. People were, were still spouting the same sort of rhetoric about... Um, you know, hydrocarbon emissions and so on, even though it had already been addressed by the other side, and mm -hmm. they were speaking as if they had, you know, didn't listen at all. I had a similar experience sitting through when the pesticide debate was on. Mm -hmm. I listened to this gentleman from Health Canada, scientist, a guy presumably who knows what he's talking about, right. and it was interesting to watch, see the look on his face. <laughs> I mean, it was clear people did not want to hear what he was saying, and all it took was four ladies with dandelions wearing dandelion hats and singing dandelion songs for to, to win everybody's sympathy. What a strange thing. Well, I think, uh, you know, just to go back <laughs> to that, actually, well, it's sort of true. City Hall does listen to, to people, but they don't listen to everybody, and uh, that's part of the reason why we're here. People who want to, the city government to do something in particular are going to show up at City Hall. They are going to make their views known to the politicians, and the politicians will act on that. People who don't expect things from their politicians, for example, people who just want you know, their taxes to stay at a reasonable level, just want their roads to be fixed, they're not the ones who are going to be going to City Hall. So politicians may be willing to listen to them, perhaps, but they're just not going there. So that's part of the reason why the Forest City Institute is here, too, because we want to basically... We're not trying to speak for the common man. That's not a mission of ours. But we suspect that there's probably a lot of sympathy for our views um, to some degree or another among the, uh, among a, a large part of the population and we'll try to um, go to City Hall and... Well, that, and I like it. Actually, I if I can just interrupt ahead. for a moment. Yeah. Um, like, just in today's free press, uh, the free press had an unscientific poll about what to do with the so-called surplus. You know, the $8.9 <laughs> million dollars over taxation. Yeah, yeah. Put your dandelion hat on. That's what <laughs> you have to do. Well, yeah. es essentially that's what happened because the vast majority of people who responded to this online poll and called the free press and so on, said, we want the roads to be fixed and we want the overtaxation to end and the money returned to the taxpayers. Mm -hmm. And the response from the politicians was just absolutely incredible. You know, Gord Hume is basically setting the city up for failure by saying, no, we will not give you, you know, we will not reduce the overtaxation and we will not give the money back to the citizens of London. 
I heard him just this morning on another station reiterating the same thing and calling anybody who who, who wants to also include um, sewer charges and things like that as part of the tax base. Oh, no, they're completely wrong. He hides behind these technicalities all the time when the voter very well knows that both of those taxes are coming out of his pocket and the fact that you know, a politician can hide behind one while putting the other one off somebody else. I, I don't know, it just doesn't cut it with me. Uh, before we get into other specifics, one last thing in the general area. Municipal laws, when they make them, are all called bylaws, right, basically. Mm -hmm. Whereas when the province and the federal government pass laws, they're called, well, laws, federal or provincial, right? Now, the, the federal and provincial supersede the bylaws generally. Do municipal police enforce all levels of law? You know what you know what I'm saying, or do are they only primarily? I know, no, of course, you know, uh, mm -hmm. murder and things like that. They'd have to look after, which are on the federal. The municipal police force is responsible for the enforcement of all laws, mm -hmm. uh, but because bylaws tend to deal with very uh, limited sets of circumstances, uh, the city also has municipal bylaw enforcement officers, separate from the police, separate from the yeah. from yeah. the actual city police force. Now. This can kind of segue into another thing. Um, the whole issue, the city tried to float the idea of licensing landlords, uh, supposedly to regulate you know, inappropriate behavior and so on. And once again, it's a case of here's the city has a mechanism, the city by law enforcement officers who can deal with things like you know, garbage improperly placed on the curbs and you know, houses improperly uh, done up as rentals. And the city doesn't use that. Instead, they try and grasp for more and greater power somewhere else. So, you know, that's, that's another one of the things that we need to look at, and one of the reasons why we're here is, you know, if we already have the tools, why are the tools not being used, or how can we use the tools that we already have more effectively? Excellent. 661-3600 uh, is the number you can call if you want to join a conversation this morning. I am joined in the studio this morning by members of the Forest City Institute, and uh, they are a group dedicated to advocating free market solutions on the municipal level. Just a quick comment before we go to the, uh, the next quick break is on uh, public transportation, basically. We see two major issues, buses and taxi licensing. You know, those are the two areas the city's always getting into. Free market solutions there, what would be the quick answer on those? Well, the quickest, the, the quickest and, and, and fastest way to, to uh, a partial free market solution, at least, um, in the case of public transit, would be to sell the transit commission. Uh, oh, that's a that would be that's a real well. I mean, it's been done for before. For example, London, England sold its uh, sold its um, public transit uh, commission or their mm -hmm. whatever they call their public transit commission over there uh, to private operators. Now, uh, you know, it's not that's not fully a free market solution because those private operators would be bound by various restrictions sure. that the city puts on them. But at least those private operators can find cost reductions and uh, not be quite um, not be quite uh, held to, to to the same um, to the same problems that uh, monopoly unions, for example. Now, is there even a sign city. that anyone in our current city council would even not look at an option no, like that? No, no, and you know that's why we haven't even gone there <laughs> yet. Okay, you know. and <laughs> and of course, Steve Orser is, is well known for some of his. Uh, you know, lobbying regarding the taxi situation. What do you think the situation there should be? Or well, once once again, it's a matter of uh, right now. Taxi licenses are basically a sort of monopoly deal by the city. Taxi licenses are very expensive because you know there's a restricted mm -hmm. supply. Obviously, there's a great demand for taxi licenses. Um, if that was opened up somehow, you know, have more taxis, more choices for people who need to get around. Yeah, it's, it's a licensing system that's not like a business license. A business license isn't limited. I take the bus in LA, which is kind of a scary prospect. Oh man, it's like, and it's not so much the bus itself, it's the way everybody in LA looks at the bus. Everybody looks at the bus like it's a little piece of the ghetto that broke free and started floating up and down the street. <laughs> Look at it, it's like a big poverty bird. saw this I was walking down the street and I saw an argument between a homeless guy and a cab driver and the homeless guy I'm not kidding starts yelling at the cab driver I can't believe we let you into this country <laughs> 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 
You're nothing but a burden on society. It's the guy with the job. It's called the burden on society. But this is Toronto, so that's not enough entertainment. And I'm not making this up. A prostitute came along, starts yelling at the homeless guy, why don't you shut up? Get a real job. When, when they brought that restriction in. Well, things Any, become a non-issue. People just get resigned to these kind of things. That, uh, so no, but I mean, the, now, but you see, I talk to people yeah. occasionally. You know, when, when, it, when, it happened, when it happened, obviously it had a big impact. I mean, businesses uh, either, well, they do go out of business or they, you know, they cope in other ways. Um, yeah, and basically the businesses, you know, have to pay the price for the city's uh, decision to get into social or health engineering of the population. Um, in the long run, though, these things do tend to get forgotten and people do get used to it. Um, well, that's, that's, the, that's actually, to me, the frightening thing, is that we yeah, just accept well, exactly. our liberty's gone out mm -hmm. the window and then, okay, well, I'll carry on as long as it doesn't bother me, or I'll carry on with my liberty behind closed doors or where the authorities can't see me, which is usually well, what Well, I mean, goes that's on. pretty much what people are left to. I yeah. mean, what can you really do? If you, if you are a restaurant owner, for example, and you would like your, your patrons to be able to smoke, well, y you can let them, but you're going to be fined, and uh, you're going to sure. be harassed out of business sooner or later. So there's obviously the, you know, the, the the idea that people can't fight city hall. There, once a law has been passed, it is difficult to fight city hall, and uh, people just have to live with it. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, and most people that uh, they just they do want to kind of get on with their lives. Uh, they have a lives that are very independent of what the city government does, and and that's their main interest. And that's how that's how, of course, city governments can get away with doing so much of this there's, stuff. There's another reason, too, of course, is uh, the way arguments are framed. If you were to say, for example, that why shouldn't people smoke in a restaurant? Everybody is an adult. They know the risks of smoking. You know, if you don't choose to go to a restaurant where people are smoking, then you go somewhere else. But the response is always an argument ad hominem. It's like, oh, you're against people's health. You know, you're going right. to risk people's health. Well, you know, that's not the argument, that's not the issue, but by by attacking the person, they effectively shut down the argument, shut down the debate. Well, that seems to be the tactic lately, and uh, that's why personalities have become, I guess, such a big factor in politics, and London certainly seems to be creating its personalities. What, what What's your overall assessment of some of the personalities in City Hall? We always, we always hear about, you know, our politicians should have some kind of vision, you know, for the future. When I hear that coming from a left-winger, I get kind of scared, right? <laughs> but uh, the mayor, I don't know, if she has a vision for London, I can't see it. She gets <laughs> elected all the time. Um, it's, it's incredible. I've, I've actually heard other media people in other cities talk about the mayor's tendency to spout platitudes. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows there a lot of what comes out of her. She's a very efficient platitudes. and consummate politician in yes. a lot of ways. It, one of her great strengths is, is her uh, ability to to memorize mm -hmm. everything that uh, city staff writes out uh, all the reports. So she's got the rationales in front of her because yep. those are the city, city staff rationales for doing things. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very effective. Obviously she's been elected for a couple of terms. Uh, whether that makes her a leader, well, that's uh, something that people can decide for themselves. But you know, certainly in, in terms of po political speak, yeah, she's very efficient. So, mm -hmm. In one sense, we, you know, we don't really want to deal too much in personalities. You know, this is not a personal well, attack I, against uh -huh. various city council members. This is more a case of you know, us and the FCI saying, listen, you're being told certain things by city staff. You're following certain examples that cities like Toronto or Winnipeg or whatever are doing. But there's other ways to look at things. You know, so it doesn't matter <clears throat> you know what your personal opinions are. You know, since you're the executive body of the city, mm -hmm. you've got to look at the the broader range of <coughs> options and choose. You know, I that's the other oh sorry. Well I was just gonna say the reason I mentioned the platitude specifically is the whole point is there should be debate. Uh, and it, it should be honest debate. And I think that's what we're this lacking. Is, this is why I think you almost can't avoid personality, personalities. I mean, policies and ideas are born in the minds of people, and, uh, and, they're, and those people come to idealize those particular ideas. And on municipal council, to me, it seems of late, at least from my perspective, because of my 
my own bias is that it seems to be Paul Van Meerbergen versus the rest of city council all the time. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> like all the one vote. <laughs> yeah. but, but like I said, um, one of the reasons that we don't get too much into the whole issue of personalities is because that just polarizes people and that just, you know, if it becomes us against them, you know, they shut us out and we're not going to be effective <laughs> in what we want to do. Mm-hmm. So, like I was saying, we we don't really want to be attacking particular politicians or particular members of the bureaucracy. We want to give them a wider range of options to look at. In the ideal world, you know, they would actually do this. Um, obviously, we probably won't get a whole lot of changes in the next two years, but, you know, we're at least setting the stage so that by 2010, when the next election comes around, hopefully enough people will have heard us, enough people have started thinking about these issues, and maybe we'll get a new crop of, uh, of potential candidates and challengers to actually, you know, stand for office and maybe actually implement some of these ideas. Well, we'll certainly talk about that a little later in the show. We're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we'll have to uh, address another issue, not just uh, our politicians and city council, but also the issue of having an informed electorate in the City of London. And we'll be back right after this. A lot of crazy people in this city, including the mayor, Mel Lastman. So you guys know, you know who he is? He's like, he's like this tall, <laughs> knee high to a paper mache moose, as we like to say. This guy's just crazy. This, guy's not, this is true. Last year in the city, we almost had a strike. All the ambulance attendants almost went on strike. So the mayor, Mel Lastman, he made a comment. He said, for every day the ambulance attendants are on strike, at least 10 people in this city are going to die. Can he do that? I mean, how much power does the mayor of Toronto have? <laughs> the mayor of Anaconda, Nova Scotia, where I'm from, he couldn't do that. You don't even have an ambulance. <laughs> but if the taxi ever goes on strike, he's going to go to the liquor store for all the underagers. <laughs> Thank you very much, President Drake. Chronicle. Why hasn't the Inquirer a three-column headline? News wasn't big enough. Mm-hmm. Mr. Carter, if the headline is big enough, it makes the news big enough. <laughs> That's right. It's not our function to report the gossip of housewives. If we were interested in that kind of thing, Mr. Kane, we could fill the paper twice over daily. Mr. Carter, that's the kind of thing we are going to be interested in from now on. Mr. Carter, I want you to send your best man. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and I'm joined in the studio today by David Aldred, Mary Lou Ambrosio, and Arthur Mayor, executive members of the Forest City Institute, a group dedicated to looking toward free market solutions to municipal issues. Now, if you're joining us uh, just now, you can call in 519-661-3600 if you want to join in the conversation or ask some questions yourself. Now, we, I guess we pretty much determined that municip- municipal- municipality is a government, okay? So given that it is a government, then an informed electorate is the next uh, step that we have to have that's essential to ensure, I guess, that we have some kind of municipal government that's functional, effective, and uh, capable, I guess, to do what it's entrusted to do. Now, in London, uh, the London Free Press is the primary source of municipal n- news for most people and almost... I hate to say the exclusive and only source for for a great, great many people. And I just collected, just in a sample, i got a folder here somewhere with these headlines. I just slapped them down. If any of these grab your attention, just make (laughs) note of them, and you might want to pick up on them. But they're they're not related to each other. Some of them are kind of all over the place. But just to give you some idea, um, City to Hear Storybook Proposals in April 7th. Proposal to Close Lombardo Museum Draws Fire. Historic core defense rises. That was a headline right on the front page. Heritage activists want city action to save at least the facades. Uh, Pride flag raises flap at City Hall. City Hall's minority hiring panned. Major taxi fight fight forecast. Push on for more parking. Old East plan up for vote. Old East has hidden potential. Downtown landlords seek city aid. 
Snout house surgery. That was a new one to me. I never heard of snout house before. <laughs> Proposed bylaw change would limit how far a garage can extend in front of a house. And, of course, there was that big one on the front page last week. Racist remark defended two councillors object to another's reference to Japanification of housing density in the city. And, you know, it's kind of makes it almost impossible to avoid personalities. And you almost wonder when you see this kind of coverage, um, if you aren't committed to some level of personality while the other side's attacking personality, are you, are you in a disadvantage or do you think you're in an advantage? Is it? Well, I like to think of it as taking the high ground. I mean, sure, if they want to, uh, you know, the collective they want to indulge in ad hominem attacks, mm -hmm. but we're standing fast with, you know, facts, figures, metrics, counterexamples, eventually people are going to start thinking, well, you know, which side actually makes more sense? Which side is really offering a, a solution to the problems that are being identified? That or we can prepare the ground for personalities who want to take up the personality battles. Well, that's, that's another way of doing it, but, uh, you know, what happens too, I think, is that you have a personality, quote, who's under attack, not because of his personality, but because of his policies. Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't see too many people coming to the defense of the people that are being attacked. And uh, I know myself, I went on the air last week on another station demanding, for example, that Gina Barber and, uh, and uh, Judy Bryant should give an apology to Mr. Mm -hmm. Van Meerberg. And it's his name that's being slapped all over the headlines, not theirs. And they should be a called to account for that. And then I see Paul Burton in the paper, you know, going even further and suggesting that, you know, it's up to, he says, never mind London Councillor Paul Van Meerbergen's comment about the Japanification of London housing. The voters will decide if it's racist or simply, as Van Meerbergen says, political correctness run amok. No, he well, won't want to commit to the obvious you know, ludicrousness of the claim. But, but, uh, but again, you know, he's basically reiterating the accusation again. Yes. And I was just astounded when I saw that. I'm, I'm surprised there aren't lawsuits flying. Well, I think, I, I mean, you know, there, there's the free press. I, I, I mean, I don't think we can, we can try to, to, uh, to play the same kind of role as a media outlet and engage in that battle of personality. There's certainly informal settings for that. Um, yeah, free press is, is, is the biggest um, source of, of news for, for a lot of Londoners. That's very true. Uh, ideally, some hopefully somebody, and there's been actually, I've heard rumors of this in the past, but I don't know if anything will ever come of it, but somebody will make, uh, you know, some more uh, formal alternatives for Londoners. But in the meantime, there's informal... Well, I was going to ask you about that. Where where would I, if I wanted to find a different spin on London city politics, where do you go? I think the first and probably most effective would be the blogosphere. Mm -hmm. um, Got any recommendations for us? Well, there's always the London Fog, which is probably the, the most comprehensive blog. Um, but it's... As you go through the sidebars of various blogs, you know, I mean, you'll see people commenting on different aspects. Uh, the thing about the blogosphere is that, you know, it's quick, it's inexpensive, and, you know, just about anybody can comment. And it, you can cover, like, a whole spectrum of, uh, of opinion. Out London is the, I guess, the left-wing version <coughs> of the London Fog. That's uh, Barry Wells' uh, site, isn't it? Isn't yeah, I believe so, yeah. yeah. So, you know, going to the blogs gives you a sort of a, a quick overview. Um, I know the free press is entering the blogosphere itself, yes. so they're going to be there as well. And uh, they just had this big redesign of the paper. About a week ago, were you aware of that at all? Yes. And uh, they made this much-touted commitment to stressing local news first, quote, local news means the world to us. I'm just curious, did they send someone out to your event last week where you had a packed no, house for Michael Corr and one of their own <laughs> columnists for two uh, huge leading people in the news? They didn't show up, eh? No, and I can tell you that I did uh, send a few follow-up emails to, I won't name the reporter, uh, and we had a nice little conversation, but... Uh, and how did that go? Uh, without naming names. Yeah, without naming <laughs> names. Um, the end result was that he personally was not interested in the issue, um, but that he would go if his editor told him to. <laughs> so that's how it was left. Well, I think we've been, we've been actually <laughs> approached uh, by every radio station. Oh, the radio and yeah. as well as, as the A Channel, uh, the Free Press is mm -hmm. the only yeah consistently. Uh, no, no, mind you, you know what? Uh, I I'm not upset about that really. I mean, we we have to put ourselves in a position where. Oh, no, I, I press will have to take notice of us at some point. Yes. Sure, and I don't think it's ever anything to be upset of. It's mm -hmm. just I'm holding them to account for their own statement. 
They're basically yep. saying, look, we're going to look after London news. Yep. And, okay, you had a packed house. You featured a columnist who appears in the free press regularly, Michael Corrin. You featured two high-profile victims of Canada's Human Rights Commission. I want to know, what does it take to get their attention? What, their personal interests? Is that all it's ever about? <laughs> well, it helps if you want something. <laughs> that, yeah. that seems to be a common theme. The free press, uh, one of the, when you were relating those headlines, one of the common themes, apart from sensationalism, is that you want something. Uh, the, you see stories in the free press all the time about some group or some uh, individual who wants the city to do something. Yes. Um, it's not news. It's not very interesting if you say, I don't want the city to do anything. Now, you know, it's not just, I guess, we the voters that have complaints about the free press coverage, but I even heard this morning Gord Hume complain about it because he doesn't like <laughs> well, the actually, headlines half the yeah, time. The free press, actually, and I've noticed uh, looking at some of the progressive or, or, or left-wing sites, yeah, the, the free press has managed to um, unite almost all Londoners in, uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, against it uh, as an incompetent newspaper uh, to a large degree. Now, one of the uh, almost ongoing things I see Paul Burton writing about with respect to local issues is the housing issue. There seems to be some big vision being pushed by uh, a handful of uh, municipal councillors and, and the free press. And this whole snout house thing was just... Uh, so you're not referring to the affordable housing issue? Yeah, afford well, affordable oh, okay. is, is separate, but mm -hmm. just talking about design and development and, and, and things like that. And there seems to be a conflicting philosophy. Should the marketplace rule and should developers decide where they want to build and, and that kind of thing or should politicians make those decisions? Is that a clear cut answer to that question in every case or is <laughs> it uh, Well, I, you know what? Uh, I, I'll just say this. I don't think, uh, you know, if you look at the record of politicians, the results of politicians' decisions on matters, uh, you decide. Do you think politicians should continue to making decisions on that? You know, if people complain about uh, these, these uh, what they call them, cookie-cutter suburbs. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people don't really like the result of municipal politi uh, policies in the past. Uh, why should we check actually the result of municipal politi uh, policies? Policies in the past. Uh, why should we trust the same people who are bringing about? Uh, well, maybe that's what they think. Maybe they think, okay, we made a we made a mistake, and, and, uh, and therefore we'll fix it. Yeah. Well, uh, I, <laughs> well, I that's, it's that's not true, though. That's not true okay. because you never see them taking responsibility for this. You know, the reason that we have the so-called snout house is because lots are very small. The reason that lots are very small is because things like land transfer taxes and property taxes are extremely high. People can't afford large lots where you have a garage well, inside. This is or whatever. exactly. You know, I heard about these snout houses. Uh, they're out under attack, and yet they're affordable housing, which is why a lot of people mm -hmm. move into them. They're not, it depends on the eye of the beholder, of course, whether you think they're ugly or not, but I've seen people cover their garages up with vines and things, and you don't even know there's a garage there sometimes. Yeah, but I mean, the whole point is, you know, here's this counselor who's presuming now to be an architect in designing houses, and yet failing to take responsibility for the fact that the reason we have snout houses is regulatory failure. The basis of having houses like that is regulatory failure, city council and municipal governments in general have made it basically the only sort of affordable house that people can buy. Sure, so, so then builders accommodate themselves to the rules that they have to live with and the restrictions and, and they build these things. Now, when I heard, first heard the term snout house, everybody said I'd never heard that term before. What animal do you think of when you hear the word snout? Pig. Is there some kind of, is this another, almost like a racist slur, but not quite that far, <laughs> no, trying to intimate that uh, the people sorry, who the live in these houses, <laughs> you know, well, I'm not even thinking about the developers per se. What about the people that live in them? If I was living in one, I wouldn't be feeling too good about that label tossed on but my I, house. It sure isn't going to help my property values, is it? But I think that was, that was deliberate. It's oh, designed oh, I, to be I, pejorative. I it's designed to, you know, influence the debate about, you know, so-called urban sprawl, housing development. Uh, affordable housing and everything else. You know, you can say, well, I live in a new suburb, and it's just like uh, ad hominem attacks against other things. It's like, oh, you live in a snout house. And immediately that changes people's view of you well, what, and what your argument. What drives this? Uh, you know, I heard uh, Judy Bryan on another station the other day trying to justify the thing about the snout houses. She basically had two points, and they were 
essentially safety. People can't see you in your front door and stuff, which to me is privacy. You could look at it that way. A lot of people like yeah, it that way. I don't think they want people to look in my front door. <laughs> that's, that's how I was thinking at the time. I'm going, what, what is this? She wants to create a community of surveillance? <laughs> it sounds rather ominous. And the other one, of course, was just aestheticness. And, and I'm thinking, well, is that really any of of her business in that sense and and I can see the practicality of these buildings you know if you got a narrow lot you put the garage out front you you save on shoveling snow and you can have a wonderful back of the house <laughs> well essentially what she, what she's doing is she's imposing her values and her views upon all of us well that's exactly you know, how it felt if you if you don't like that particular style of housing and you can afford a different house or you can afford to move to Dorchester or whatever then by all means go and buy the house that you like <laughs> but uh, you know I certainly don't want you know, Judy Bryant or some other city councilor to come around and actually presume to design my own house. You know, right. I, when I went and bought my house, you know, I was looking for certain attributes and certain aspects, and I chose the house that met all those things and was affordable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just, I mean, that's not how things came out of the blue. I was just stunned, and I saw an editorial by Burton again saying that apparently they're out to get rid of these houses and eliminate them from the community as though they were some kind of uh, well, chemical agent that has to be <laughs> made. That's, that's going to do wonders for the mayor's uh, attempt to retain people in London. You yeah. Know? Uh, oh, great. We can't even afford houses now, so off they go. Listen, before we uh, break and get back to some of the basics of cities, are there any other key issues that we haven't mentioned yet that you want to make sure that you you get into the conversation? Because I'm sure I haven't thought of everything and I don't want the we've got about 15 minutes or so left. Anything on anybody's mind before we carry on? No, I, I think not any particular mm -hmm. issues, but just generally speaking, sure. one of the things, uh, one of the reasons we did the free speech town hall yeah. is because I think fundamental freedoms are critical at every level of government. Mm -hmm. They permeate everywhere. And one of the things that we've noticed is that the temptation to ignore facts and figures uh, in favor of politically correct strictures mm -hmm. is one of the reasons we're in the mess we're in at any level. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say that's not, what level. that's not just municipal. No, it's yeah. not. But right. it's the same thing. So Paul Van Merbergen uses the word Japanification. Conversation over. Now we're off to another, uh, instead of talking about the issues. Right. Done. Or ignoring, or ignoring parts of the issues. Um, we just released, uh, we just gave a press release about the... Um, Canadian Federation of Cities asking for more money from the federal and provincial government. But how many people, how many listeners are aware that London receives 121% more money from the federal and provincial government than 30 comparable cities, as, uh, as discovered in a, yes, a national survey? And how do we, they, ra they how do we rate that? <laughs> they essentially ran a push poll, uh -huh. uh, the Association of Municipalities. And then they want... Uh, they Again, they, they look for that emotional reaction from people. Do you think the federal government should give us more money? Of course. Yeah, well, without telling them that, well, great, the federal government already gives you all kinds of money. And, of course, as we've observed before, that all comes out of the same pocket. So. Well, there you go. Listen, we're going to take a quick break, and when we mm. come back after this break, uh, back to some of the basics, uh, what municipal government really perhaps should be involved in back after this. We go down to visit my cousin Lorraine is a living oxymoron. <laughs> she lives in a mobile home with a concrete driveway. <laughs> We don't know if we want to live here, but it's a hell of a parking spot. Uh, I grew up in a, in a very small farming uh, community in Saskatchewan, and uh, I like big cities, but I wouldn't want to be a cop in a big city. You know, I think the police have it way easier in a small town, especially when it comes to investigating crimes. You know, in a big city, crime can go unsolved for like 20 or 30 years. In a small town, the police are there. Can you describe the man who robbed you? Yeah, he was Dwayne. <laughs> go get him. Everybody knows everybody in a small town. The police are like, well, should we go down to Dwayne's work and pick him up? No, today's Tuesday. He's at home with the kids. Oh, that's right. Every crime solved in about 11 minutes in a small town. It's kind of nice. It doesn't exactly work like that in a larger town. 
It's funny, there's always been that debate, too, whether London's a small town or a big city and we're sort of on the precipice or something like this. But, of course, uh, you know, the back-to-basics issues, infrastructure, sewers, uh, streets, police, law enforcement, that kind of stuff, isn't a very sexy issue. And uh, is that one of the reasons you think that maybe it falls back on the back burners rather than... Oh, absolutely. You don't get a lot of attention for just looking after the basic services. And a lot of the basic services, for example, sewers, they're under the ground anyway. If you could neglect those for years, nobody would notice. Until, until there's uh, a sink. Until there's <laughs> a sink. Yeah, exactly. And, of course, you, you know, getting back to your point of personalities, you know, if you were going to be at the ribbon cutting ceremony, would you rather be, you know, opening the Anne-Marie de Seco Best uh, Performing Arts Center or the Anne-Marie de Seco Best uh, Waste Control Treatment Plant? Exactly. I, th I think there's a lot of... Uh, ego and maybe even personal pride in some of the politicians and the things they want to push and be known for. Well, don't you and, have and to have a bit of ego to be a politician in the first well, place? Well, I, I guess you do. Uh, maybe that's part of the issue. <laughs> Another show we exactly. could do Exactly, which is why, well, you know, it, it's, you know, it, you talk about the personalities, and the personalities are very important, and they are what grabs the headlines. But because of the, the nature of the kind of personalities that are usually going to get to be attracted to government, um, that's why we need to actually have a debate right on the jurisdictional responsibilities rather than the personalities to begin with. Well, you know, we need to constrain the politicians. Sure. It used to be a fundamental premise of government in North America that the law existed partially to at least constrain the politicians rather than the population. It's been come, it's, it's been quite reversed. It's it's certainly not like that anymore. We, you know, we even talk about basic services that our municipal taxes were theoretically enacted for in the first place: garbage collection, snow removal, things like that. Now, as our as those taxes ra raise proportionately the service drops. You know, you have minimums on how many bags you can put out, all this, all part of the environmental thing as well. And then we've got issues with unions, uh, you know, absenteeism that came up. Any comments on some of those issues? They've been pretty prominent in the papers well, I think of late. <laughs> I think, once again, it's a matter of how the debate's being framed. I mean, the constant refrain about infrastructure is, oh, the city does not have the resources. And yet, you know, city spending has ballooned 40%. City taxes have increased by approximately 31% since 2000. Uh, supplementary fees have increased 60%. City receives 121% more money from the federal and provincial government. So where is all this money going? You it's know, not going to the infrastructure. We know yeah, that. the reason <laughs> that the city doesn't have resources to devote to infrastructure is because they choose not to put resources to infrastructure. And you can make similar arguments over just about any of these other you know, basic issues. The city council the executive of the city is not taking charge of the administration and saying, okay, we need to do this, this, and this. And they're certainly not taking charge of the administration when the administration is failing consistently to achieve any of the of the goals. It, you know, you, you look, look at the absenteeism, right? Who, who runs the city, the administration or politicians? Who would you say is more in control? <sighs> well, you, you know, a lot of data is, you have to divide it up. I mean, politicians, uh, you know, obviously are the ones who have the real power. They don't choose to exercise a lot of times. You know, uh, the, stat, the city administration does hold a lot of power because they pass reports to politicians who generally, um, very often, will just take them at face value and uh, pass rec staff recommendations. If you look at city budgets, for example, every year, they pretty much always conform to staff recommendations. There is some tweaking and... Uh, uh, usually <laughs> adding a few things, but... Uh, well, it almost seems to me that all of the uh, initiatives that we see coming out of the city seem to be administrative-oriented more than politician-oriented. Well, the politicians often direct the administration, oh, we want to report on whether you know, this is feasible or, or whether or not this would be politically uh, consequential mm -hmm. in any way. We've only got about oh, two, three minutes left. Some real quick questions for you. You know, London recently went through a ward change, reducing the number of wards, or increasing the number of wards, but reducing the number of uh, councillors to one ward from two, uh, to, to one councillor <laughs> per ward yeah. uh, from two. Um, a good thing or a bad thing? 
or or not a thing at all. <laughs> well, you know, given the given the the way you know, given what's going on in the city these days, it it, it probably in essence doesn't really make much difference now. I would say uh, in years gone by, when the city wasn't actually looking after too much except for basic services, it would have been an important thing. I I think it was a bad thing in the long run. Uh, Certainly nothing positive out of that, but um, that's my personal opinion, actually. That's not based on any research. But, you know, the frenzy going into it seemed to indicate the people who were in support of it were expecting some huge monumental change to occur by creating... Well, they are, they are certainly, because, you know, one of the things that the two-counselor for ward system often uh, resulted in was that you would have uh, personalities that were, you know, kind of polar opposites on the ideological spectrum. You might have... you know, within the so same ward. Yeah, within the same ward. You'd, you'd have, not? yeah, exactly. You'd have sort of a left and a right. You know, okay, would that be good ward. or bad? That could be a good thing. Well, <laughs> it, it, you know, you know, if it results in any paralysis on the city, uh, then that could very well be a very good thing. Uh, uh, but you know, what what the proponents of these war changes were hoping for was that by having only one councillor per ward, that they may be able to, you know, actually get some more prog- uh, progressive. Uh, representation on the on the council with you know without the balance between mm-hmm. left and right. Well here's another one for you. Board of control. Keep it or get rid of it? No, it should have been dumped a long time ago. Really? Well the uh, I mean it was actually voted out and politicians have chosen to uh, well my understanding once again stand behind a technicality. It was, it was just a uh, plebiscite and they didn't meet the because uh, don't aren't they going to put the the board of control back again anyway on call it a committee and just we don't get to vote. They for will it. and you know actually I, I'll disagree with us or myself on this actually and we don't have a forest city. Oh what a time to bring this up like <laughs> two minutes before the end of the show. I'm now sorry. We I'll speak to you later. I, I, yeah. It's going to create pressure though well, for full time counselors mm-hmm. for for more pay for counselors. It's not going to save uh, a lot in anything. And actually, I think it's quite useful to have uh, a certain number of politicians that are elected at large. Okay, finally, uh, um, Forest City Institute. Do you ever envis- envisage the Forest City Institute uh, getting involved in the political process, maybe fielding a slate of candidates? Or is that beyond your mandate, or is that not something you're really looking f- well, to as do, per se? As an advocacy group, uh, we're more concerned with uh, expanding the spectrum of ideas now, if this attracts people who want to run for office and attracts people who want to put these ideas into action, we think that's a good thing. Um, just the fact that we have, you know, a broader spectrum of debate during elections and even in between elections is a better thing. Um, I wouldn't suggest myself that we should, you know, run a slate or anything like that. Certainly, at election time, we'd look at each candidate. Possibly endorse candidates. Or endorse. Like yeah, yeah, we'd look, uh, we'd look at what the candidates stand for, and then say, okay, this person is advocating something good. This person. See, one of the things we've noticed uh, during elections, of course, is everybody's literature talks about fiscal restraint and fiscal responsibility, but the truth is they don't all really believe it. So that could be a function that the Forest City Institute could do. Excellent. Well, you know, we could talk about this for hours and hours, but we're actually out of time, so we got to run now. And I want to thank my guests for joining us, David Aldred, Mary Lou Ambrosia, Arthur Mayor. And we hope you'll join us again next week on our journey in the right direction. Take care. But the summer's here, golf. Do we have golfers here? Anybody golf? Yeah, are you, are you a good golfer? Not bad, I'm not a good golfer. Last time I went golfing, I bought a box of golf balls. Fifteen golf balls. It lasted me seven holes. Balls were gone. It said on the box, longer distance, straighter flight. Next time I'm going to buy ones that say they float.